<laughs> Are you going to support my view, Paul? I'm going to try. Well, I'm at, if not, I'm out here. <laughs> Are you going to support mine? So we're still in the uh, doctrine of end times. We're talking about things that are yet to come in the, in the future. And tonight specifically, we're going to talk about the millennium. Somebody told me I should play the um, Jerry Seinfeld episode where Kramer and, and Newman were fighting over the millennium, but I, I decided not to do, do that. Before we get too much into our discussion about the millennium, I thought it would be good just to kind of talk about the book of Revelation for just a moment. Revelation, just just the small r, Revelation word means uh, something that's un, that's that's covered, being made visible, something that's um, it's an unveiling or a disclosure, and that's what the book of Revelation does for us. Uh, it was written by, the, of course, by the apostle John while he was on the island of Patmos. Uh, he was banished there by the Roman authorities for his faithful preaching of the gospel. And while there, he received a series of visions that kind of laid out the future history of the world. And it, in it contains a message of hope. There's a lot of hope contained within the book of Revelation. And, and that we see, first and foremost, that God is sovereign. We have a lot of hope in God's sovereignty. Uh, there's hope that sin and evil will ultimately be dealt with by God. And that Christ will come in glory and, and judge and rule the world. The book is uh, prophetic, it speaks of future events, unless uh, your view of the book is different, and we'll talk about that some tonight. But it's foremost a revelation about Jesus Christ himself. The book teaches us a few things. We learn about the, the future political setup of the world. Uh, we learn about the last battle in human history, the, the rise and the fall of the, of the Antichrist, Christ, the thousand-year reign, which we're going to talk about tonight, the glories of heaven and the eternal state, and then the, the final state of the, the righteous and the wicked. And so as you look at and think about Revelation, there are a couple of different ways you can look at it. There are some approaches that you can, can think about. And one would be, it's called a historicist view. And in that view of Revelation, you, you look at Revelation mainly from a symbolic standpoint so that the the ages of the church are played out through revelation so where we are today is somewhere contained in the book of revelation you look at it from a from a historic kind of standpoint it's representative of events that take place in the world the next way to look at it or another possible way to look at it is, is an idealist view and it it doesn't look at the book as uh, historical or prophetic mainly, but it looks at it from a, a um, 
kind of the struggle between good and evil and contains a lot of spiritual truth. And then a, a futurist view of the book of Revelation would see it as actual events that are involving actual people. Um, you know, Grudem takes the view that, that the futurist view is probably the, does the most justice to Revelation because of, all, because of its claim for prophecy. Well, what's the difference between historic and futurist? Um, historist would see the things that are talked about in Revelation as being periods of the church age. Does that make sense? Okay. Am I explaining that? And exactly. And would already be fulfilled. Some, some parts of it would be fulfilled, yes. For instance, uh, some of the judgment that we see here would be things like uh, the Roman devastation of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 uh, would be the historicist and the historists would even say that there are some things that are still yet future. I mean, obviously, Christ's second coming and the judgment and, and the, the glorification of believers, those things are part of that timeline of that history, but yet they're still and That's coming. why I was trying to figure out the difference between futurists and historians. The, his, the futurists would say that the vast majority of it is still yet to come. Historists would also say that the letters to the seven churches would have spanned time as we know it with some overlap between them but you know the church to you know Laodicea is at the end of time which would fit in our era today and maybe the letter to what's the first Pergamino would be the early church so tonight as we talk about the millennium we're going to try to talk about what it is when when it occurs and, uh, and we'll also talk a little bit about the tribulation Millennium itself, if you, if, you had a, if you looked at the small m, millennium, uh, is, is, is Latin, two words put together, milli, which is a thousand, and annum, which is year, so you get a thousand years. And of course, the big m, millennium, is talking about a specific 1,000-year period. And uh, this is taken from uh, Revelation 20, verses 1 through 10. Um, the thousand-year period in those 10 verses is mentioned six times. And Grudem points out that there are some, certainly some interpretive challenges for um, talking about and thinking about the, the millennium. This is the only place in scripture where this is mentioned. The millennium is only mentioned in, these, in Revelation 20. Um, you know, John, as I said, John, God gave John this vision and, and, and in a lot of cases he was told to write this down. And I think one of the interpretive challenges that we have is and certainly, I think God, as he inspired scripture, could have exactly written down what he wants. So don't take what I'm about to say the wrong way. God, the scripture is exactly like God wants it. But imagine if you were, you know, you lived back when George Washington lived, and you had a vision of today, and you saw, you went down to Hartsfield, and you saw an airplane sitting on the ground, and you saw it power up and take off. And then you had to write to the people of George Washington today what you saw. You know, airplane wouldn't mean any, you know, that, that's not even a word you could use. So you, would, you might would describe this as a shiny, loud bird. You know, I don't know what, how you would describe it. But you can see how John would just have difficulties putting things into to writing down the things that he saw that were so far 
uh, so far in advance. Again, don't take, don't get me wrong. God certainly can have the scripture uh, written exactly as He wanted, and it is. But certainly that contributes to some of the in interpretive challenges. There's a lot of symbolism in the Book of Revelation. Uh, the chronology um, is not always completely linear, and and even when we tell stories today, you know, if I I told you I went to the Braves game last week, and I did. You know, I might tell you that the Braves won before I told you, you know, the other parts of the story. So sometimes the chronology of Revelation can, can be a little bit confusing. And then certainly God, um, and I believe this with all my heart, God retains some, some things for himself. There are just some things that he didn't intend for us to know fully and completely, and, and some of those things are, are hidden from, from us. There are a lot of complex factors a lot of difficulties in it, so Grudem uh, warns us that, you know, we need to, w where there are questions about a certain scripture, the only safe thing to do is to go to another part of scripture and see what it says, and we'll try to do that a, lo a little tonight. The other key is to remain open-minded. You know, there have been a lot of smart, a lot of well-studied men who've spent a lot of time studying these kind of things, and we're going to talk about at least four views of, of the millennium tonight. Um, so there's a lot of things going on. Did we get news? And so, uh, you know, it's important that we extend grace to those who might have a different opinion. This is also, you know, as we've, we've been talking about some of the end times things, this is not a doctrine that you have to get bent out of shape about. There are some things that we have to drive a stake in the ground and say this is absolute. Jesus is God's son. We have to agree on that. Jesus is the only way to be saved. We have to agree on that. Um, a doctrine like the millennium or, or exactly when Jesus is coming in, it's, it's, a, it's certainly important. God put it in scripture, but it's not something that we have to, you know, it's not a hill that we need to die on, certainly. So I thought one of the first things we should do tonight as we get into this is just to, to um, read this scripture. I, I printed out a, a copy of it. I'd like for you to follow along. I'm going to actually play. I've got an audio Bible here. I'm going to play it and uh, sometimes having somebody who's a professional reader say things just helps. Uh, so you guys follow along as, as uh, I don't know who reads this thing, but it's not Max McLean. and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. 
Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. All right, y'all got it? Everybody good? <laughs> well, there are four major views. There are probably others, but there are at least four major views of how to look at this passage of Scripture. The first is called amillennialism. The second is postmillennialism. The third is classic premillennialism. And then the fourth is pre-tribulational millennialism, uh, sometimes also called dispensational premillennialism. And basically the, the views or how you look at this passage of Scripture really boil down to when does Christ return? That's really the question that you're asking or that is being asked. And we're going to look at these uh, tonight. Amillennialism, if you've got this, uh, I've created a little chart here. There was, um, I don't know how many of you have copies of the Grudem book. There were, were charts in the, the book that explained this, but I found this one online and thought it would help us as we talked about this tonight. So as you think about amillennialism, if you look at the bottom chart there, it's, it's labeled number four in the green section. And this is what we're talking about. So as you're on the left side of the page, you see the cross there. there that's Christ's death at the cross. And then as you move through time toward the, toward the right side of the page, that's, that's time advancing. And you see on the far right side, the second coming and the last judgment. And each one of those charts will be like that, kind of starting at the cross and moving toward uh, the last judgment. Amillennialism believes that this passage, verses 1 through 10, best describes the present church age. So we are in this passage is, is what amillennialism would say. Christ's reign is not a bodily, earthly reign. It's, a, it's more of a heavenly reign. And the thousand years is not literal, according to this view. Uh, <coughs> is that a question? What does the word amillennial mean in itself? Okay, amillennial would mean there is no millennium. No that's millennium. correct. Yeah. No millennium. Right. And that's why I say, that's correct. From, from their view, you know, it, it's, a, it's just a word to the, the thousand years is, is symbolic for a long period of time. So they would say that it's, it's not a literal, it's a kind of a figure of speech. And the present church age, so we're in that, we're in this symbolic millennial now, millennium now, the present church age will continue until Christ returns, and then all of the end time events happen at once. There are some, you know, what Grudem lays out as arguments in favor of amillennialism, um, and the first, their first point would be that this passage speaks to the present church age. Scripture does you know, in, in certain places uh, seem to lay out that there is one resurrection. Who had John 5, 28 and 29? Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. 
Those who have done good will rise to live. Those who have done evil will rise to be judged. Okay. So the first part of that verse says there is a time coming. My translation, I don't know what translation you've got. And I've, uh, I've got the ESV. It says, do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all those in the tombs will hear his voice. So that verse sort of speaks to there is a, a, a time of, of one resurrection. Uh, the, the amillennialist also has a, a hard time believing that glorified believers and sinners can live on the earth at the same time. So the amillennial view explains that in that we're currently in that period and there are no glorified believers on earth at this time. So They also have the belief that people can't go on sinning. If Christ is reigning, if he's here physically on earth and, and he's reigning in his, in his glory, then people couldn't possibly go on sinning. And, and again, scripture seems to say that all major end time events happen at the same time. Now, the arguments against amillennialism you know, if this passage refers to the present church age where we are now and it speaks of Satan, let's see, where was that verse early on? Verse 2, the serpent is seized and, and is bound for a thousand years. So if, if that is describing this present age, you know, is that what we really think, that Satan is bound and doesn't have influence in the world? Who had Second Corinthians 4.4? 4? <coughs> Me. Read it. You know, I pass these out in advance Everybody so you'll be ready. <laughs> I can find out what window it was in. All right, second, all right, yeah, right. First four five. Who had second Corinthians four four? And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Okay. So the amillennialists would say that that Satan was bound at Christ's death that he was defeated, and yet this was written after that, and who's the God of this world? Satan, and he's, he's active and working. Who had 1 Peter 5, 8? Peter. Sorry, I'm swallowing. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Okay, 1 Timothy 4, 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons. Okay, so an argument obviously against amillennialism is that Satan doesn't appear to be bound in this present time. He's, he's active and working. Uh, on the argument that Scripture teaches one resurrection, we only have to look at the passage that we were in tonight. Uh, in verse 5, he describes... Uh, or he, he says that those who came and, and reigned with Christ, he called that the first resurrection, implying that there's a second resurrection. One resurrection is for believers and one for non-believers. Each person does have one resurrection, but they could possibly occur at different times. They don't have to be at the same time. And based in, in arguing the point that glorified believers and sinners can't live on earth at the same time, certainly Jesus did. When Jesus was raised from the dead, he had a glorified body, and, and he moved about, he communicated, uh, he, he 
ate, he, he talked to um, the disciples. Uh, so he had a glorified body and, and lived among believers and, and non-believers. <clears throat> also, Matthew 27, 51 through 53 speaks to that. Who had that? I do. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs were also opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Okay. So that verse seems to imply that or it definitely says that, that believers were, were raised, and uh, we could assume that those were glorified bodies, and they were moving about on the earth among um, non-believers. And then finally, uh, the argument that people can't go on sinning when Christ is reigning on the earth. Um, you know, he certainly wasn't reigning like he will at some point, but uh, Judas was as close to Jesus for three years of his life and then ultimately rejected him and, and uh, betrayed him. The Pharisees and many others saw Jesus do incredible miracles did things that only God could do even were acknowledged that only God could do and uh, yet they refused to believe Satan himself at one point was in God's presence he knows fully who God is and yet he rejected him so the argument that people can't go on sinning when when they see or know Christ is is just not true and it's really hard to square you know, the writing of Revelation 20 with the, the view of amillennialism. The second view or way to look at this passage is called post-millennialism. And if you've got the chart there again, it's, it's number three in the yellow portion. Are these Easter colors on purpose? I don't know. Not on purpose. <laughs> Pretty pastel. But this view... If you, you see the cross again, Christ's death on the, on the far left. And um, what this view says is that the gospel message will continue to grow, that the world will grow more and more righteous, that things will get better and better and better. You're doubting this position already, aren't you? <laughs> things will get better and better and better. Is that the evidence? <laughs> I'm not espousing this position. I'm just telling you some people do. The world will function more and more closely to God's standard. Morality will increase. It will increase to a point where there will be great peace and righteousness on the earth, a millennial period where Christ reigns. And then after that time, Christ will return, and um, believers will be raised. Those who are dead in Christ will be raised. And... Um, Unbelievers will be raised and, and judged, and then the eternal state begins. The primary characteristic of this view is the belief that, uh, very optimistic about the power of the gospel to, to make a, a big social change in, in society. And, and Grudem points out the argument for that is one of, one of the arguments would be the Great Commission itself, who had Matthew 27, 51 through 53. Read again. And behold, the church of the temple was torn in two, from top to bottom. No, that's your other. Matthew 27. 27, 51 through 53. Ah, yeah, I wrote it down wrong. I'm sorry. Go to the Great Commission, Matthew 28. Whatever those numbers are. 19. 
22. Yeah, sorry about that. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them start, in the name of I'm sorry, start in verse 18. You sure? <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> if Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you commanded you and behold I am with you always to the end of the age okay so the post-millennialist who holds this view takes the words of Jesus where he says all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth to mean that that, that Jesus that God is going to exact this this change where the gospel goes forward and the world becomes more and more righteous that authority of Jesus is going to make this happen they see his his power is is part of that evidence and his promise to be with us as we as we go and share they see this as as proof that this this change would would come and that it would triumph and change the, the whole world another reason that post-millennials view the this passage the way they do are parables about the growth of the kingdom who had hopefully I got this verse right Matthew 13 31 through 32 he told them another parable the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. Okay. So the postmillennialist sees this parable talking about how the kingdom of God starts tiny, small little mustard seed, and yet it grows into a branch, you know, into a tree that has branches that is large enough for all the birds of the air to come and make their nests. Um, while you're there, read verse 33 as well. This is another Which parable. One? Verse 33. Uh, he told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into six pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. Okay. So they see the gospel kind of like you know this this parable of Jesus telling how the leaven is put into the bread and when it's kneaded around it's, it, it affects the whole loaf. And so they say that the kingdom will grow in influence until it permeates and transforms the whole world. The post-millennialists would say that the world is becoming more and more Christian, that faith is growing and spreading out, out into the world even when there's great persecution. Uh, Grudem says this is a good time to point out that the post-millennialists view of the millennium is different than, than that of premillennialists. They don't envision a millennium where there's a renewed earth or where there are glorified saints. They don't envision Christ's bodily uh, presence uh, reigning on the earth. Now the arguments against postmillennialism, and maybe we don't even have to say many of those, <laughs> but while the Great Commission does speak of Christ's authority, it doesn't guarantee that, that people would, will believe. Christ gives us authority to go out and proclaim the message, but nowhere in that, that passage, in that scripture, does it say that, that it, it, it is always effective. The parables about the, the growth of the kingdom, while they do show that the kingdom will grow, that it will start very small, and it did, and that, that Christianity will grow, and it has, it doesn't necessarily say how big, um, so we just don't know to what extent the, the kingdom will grow. 
And certainly parables have a tendency, you know, to be pressed too far. You, you know, par Jesus told parables for a specific purpose, and, and we can't take, you know, exactly what he said and extrapolate it into to every situation that they might apply because because sometimes we can, we can cause parables to say something that Jesus didn't really mean. In response to the world becoming more Christian, I think all of us would probably agree we could also say the world is becoming more evil. We see unprecedented drug use, marital infidelity, pornography, homosexuality, rebellion against authority, all of these kind of things. You'd be hard-pressed to find anybody who didn't think that these things were growing in influence in the world. And to think that, you know, there's going to become a time when most of the people are Christian just doesn't seem reasonable. And, and Scripture kind of speaks to that. Who had Matthew 7, 13 through 14? Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Okay, so Jesus himself said that the number would be small. There would be few that find it, not that it's going to grow and grow until uh, a point where most people are, are believers. So we just don't see evidence that the world is, is becoming morally better. Who had Second uh, Timothy 3, 1 through 5? <clears throat> but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God having the appearance of godliness, but denying it is power. Avoid such people. Yeah. Doesn't sound like the world's getting better, does it? Mm. How about 2 Timothy 3, 12 and 13? Me. You ready? <laughs> I get most of them, you guys. And where was I? 312. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Okay. So, Brian, I think your reaction to the arguments for post-millennialism are justified by these scriptures. The next view... Two minutes ago, before you finished this, uh -huh. you started, you referenced pre-millennialism. Um, Did I misspeak? Well, I don't know. I think you were contrasting it with post-millennialism and Ashley and Coates. But my question was, is there a pre-millennial view that's not post or pre-tribulation? Pre-millennialism. Is there it's a third as well? If it's not on the sheet of paper here, that's what threw me when you were talking. Is there a pre-millennial view that's not? That doesn't differ presently with the tribulation church? Not... I'm sure there is. That that's not. I thought that's what I, you were alluding to when you contrasted no, it with postmillennialism. No, okay. no. The two um, premillennial views that we're going to look at both <laughs> think there's a tribulation, or both would say there's a tribulation, but you know when does it occur are, are the two differences. Okay. And so we're going to talk about the pre pre premillennialism first. Um, my chart is not in order. That's that's the one on top. Okay, so that's in the blue section. 
This position says that Christ will return before the millennium. Okay, so you see the millennium there in pink and the second coming just, just to the left of, of the millennium. So Christ returns just before the millennium. The basic premise is that this present church age will continue. Uh, a, a time of great suffering that the Bible predicts will, will come about. The, the people of the earth will experience this great great suffering and after the tribulation which will be the end of the church age Christ returns and establishes his millennial kingdom here on earth so the believers who have died and are raised to, the believers who have died will then be raised to meet Christ in the air and, and believers who are alive are caught up and also meet him in the air who had 1 Thessalonians 4 15 through 18 okay. for this we declare to you by word from the Lord that we who are alive we who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the, trump of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So the, the premillennialist would view these verses as being the second coming of, of Christ just before his millennial kingdom. The events associated with premillennialism basically follow the, the chronology of, of verses 1 through 10 from Revelation 20 that we read, where we saw that Christ will reign physically on earth. A, a, a premillennialist, premillennialist believes that Christ will reign physically on earth and that believers will reign with him for a, a literal thousand year period. During this time, Satan will be restricted. He will be locked in the abyss. After the thousand years, Satan will be loosed and he will have one final mission that God, God allows him to go lead one final rebellion. Satan and his followers will be defeated. At such time, Satan is cast in, into hell. Unbelievers will then be raised and judged and thrown into hell and then believers enter the eternal state. Arguments, the arguments for premillennialism, several Old Testament passages speak of a future state of redemption um, that seems to be something greater than this current church age that we're in. Who had Isaiah 65:20? Okay. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man he who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere youth. He who fails to reach a hundred will be considered cursed. Okay. I also messed that one up. Read 19 as well. Uh, 65, 19? Yes. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Okay. So this passage kind of seems to be speaking of a time in the future where there'll be um, no more crying, no more weeping. You know, we don't hear the cry of distress. Um, there aren't infants who die at a young age. Um, so it seems to be speaking of a time, a future time when um, we'll see something greater than this present age. Similarly in, in Psalm 72, 8 through 14. He will rule from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. 
the desert tribes will bow before him, and his enemies will lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and the distant shores will bring tribute to him. The kings of Sheba and Seba will present him gifts. All kings will bow down to him, and all nations will serve him, for he will deliver the needy who cry out, the afflicted who have no one to help. He will take pity on the weak and the needy, and save the needy from death. He will rescue them from oppression and violence, for precious is their blood in his sight. Okay, so that passage also seems to speak to a time when, you know, if you think about the, the millennium when Christ is reigning, he rules from sea to sea. The desert tribes bow before him. His enemies lick the dust. Seems to be pointing to a, a future time when, um, you know, there's there's a great rule, um, but total sin is is not removed. And there are other passages that speak to this, and we won't read those. But you know, you, you may jot these down and look at them later. Isaiah 11, 2 through nine, Zechariah fourteen six through eleven, first first Corinthians fifteen twenty four, and Revelation two twenty seven. 12.5 and 19.15 and there are New Testament passages that seem to suggest a, a future millennial kingdom Revelation 2 26 and 27 12.5 and 6 and 19.5 uh, all speak of a time when those who overcome and persevere shall rule with Christ and have power over the nations and rule with a rod of iron and this imagery kind of fits with what we would think of, of in a millennial earthly kingdom and then as we look at the passage itself, Revelation 20, um, you know, verse 2 and 3 seems to say that Satan will be restricted uh, much, much greater than what we think he has restriction today. Uh, the statement in verse 4 that those came to life, uh, the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus Christ came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Um, seems to speak to a, a physical bodily resurrection. Uh, this, the same word is used there that Jesus used in Revelation 2.8 when he said that he is the one who died and came back to life. Scripture nowhere says that believers in the intermediate state reign with Christ. Um, there is reference to those uh, in this passage who had not taken the mark of the beast. and uh, So that alludes to a persecution that's, that is described in Revelation 13 that leads us to believe that there's some future event. Um, and this, this uh, scene in Revelation 20 must be that future event. And, you know, the passage itself follows a logical, chronological pattern that's, that's laid out. Grudem doesn't really give many arguments against premillennial, uh, premillennialism. I guess one reason is that's he, he states that that's his 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 view his preferred view. Um, I guess the arguments against premillennialism would be the other uh, views, which aren't that great: amillennialism and postmillennialism. Um, but he doesn't he doesn't outline any major objections to that view. Now there is another um, premillennial view, and it differs from classic premillennialism in that um, this view looks, believes that, th that there is a rapture, that the church is removed prior to the tribulation, that Jesus comes basically twice. It gets a little confusing. Maybe Jesus 
comes partway and, and believers are taken up, meet him in the air and go back, go back to heaven with him. And then a seven-year tribulation occurs, at which point when the tribulation is over, Jesus returns with his followers to rule for, for a thousand years. That view is, is portrayed in, in the second section there in the pink. So you see the cross on the, the far left. The, the church age continues until such time as there's a, a second coming for the church. The church is raptured and removed. A period of tribulation occurs. Christ comes with his church and then rules physically, bodily on earth during the millennium. This the left behind view. This would be very similar to, yeah, to the is, view. Can you take these in a line of getting all, you know, Catholics are premillennialism, you know, Methodists are anti-communists, or I don't, any kind of at a, at a very, at a very high level, the, the liturgical folks, Roman Catholics, Orthodox, that tend to be amillennial, but even that's a generalization, generalized statement. Uh, there's some really, really smart folks that could believe all of these at some sure. point. Sure. Yeah. You know, even post-millennialism, at one time was advocated by people like uh, Charles Hodge, John Owen. Uh, I think even Jonathan Edwards made an argument for it at one time. And, it, yeah. and, and that was what I said earlier. You know, it's, there, there's been some men who've studied this really, really long and really, really hard and, and are really genuine in, in what they believe. And, and you know, they're, they're probably more than four, but we're at least looking at these four tonight. I think we're going to go with Jerry's statement. We're going to update the church website and say we're <laughs> pan-millennialists. Well, the, the pre-tribulational, pre-millennialist view, the main reason that exists is for people who want to make a clear distinction between Israel and the church. So they, they would believe that God has made, and, and God made promises to Israel in the Old Testament, and that he intends to keep those promises at some point in the future separate from the church if that makes any sense. And so that view, th this view has legs then because the, the church is removed prior to the tribulation. And during that period of tribulation is when a, a great ingathering of the Jewish people would occur to fulfill some of the promises that are, are statements that seem to be made in, in Romans 9 and 10. As Grudem pointed out in... Um, couple of lessons ago his view is that there's really no distinction no separation between Old Testament believers and New Testament believers no separation between Jews and the church um, and I, I highlighted a few things I thought I would it's just easier to read these both Protestant and Catholic theologians outside the dispensational position have said that the church includes both Old Testament believers and New Testament believers in one church or one body of Christ this present church age, which has brought the salvation of many millions of Christians in the church, is not an interruption or a parenthesis in God's plan, but a continuation of his plan expressed throughout the Old Testament to call a people to himself. Paul recognizes that though there is a literal or natural sense in which people who physically descended from Abraham <coughs> are to be called Jews, there is a deeper or spiritual sense in which a true Jew is one who is inwardly a believer and whose heart has been cleansed by God. Paul says that Abraham is not only to be considered the father of the Jewish people in a physical sense, 
He is also, in a deeper and more true sense, the father of all who believe without being circumcised. Paul can say, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all who are children of Abraham because they are his descendants. It is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are reckoned as descendants. Paul here implies that true children of Abraham, those who are in the truest sense Israel, are not the nation of Israel by physical descent from Abraham, but those who have believed in Christ. When the Gentiles were brought into the church, Jews and Gentiles were united into one body. Paul says that God has made us both one and has broken down the dividing wall of hostility, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. Ephesians 2, 14 through 16. Um, we're just about out of time. Does anybody have any questions about any, any of that? The scriptures that you read that were in support of both tribulations didn't they mean when I listened to them and I I have gone back and studied them in the context that when I listened to them it sounded like they support pre tribulation as well. I don't see that it doesn't Well, and I think, yeah, you know, that scripture we read, can't find it now. The, um, and I don't know, was that the first Thessalonian verse? Uh That's Psalm 72 and Isaiah 65. Yeah, you know, a lot of these verses can certainly, and that's why there is confusion. I mean, you know, Unfortunately, people who have a view say these verses apply to them, and you know you can read the same verse and, and say it applies to another view. Um, so it does take study, and and and, and honestly, and, and I um, I was joking with Jerry. I, I got here early this afternoon to see if I could twist his arm into teaching this lesson, and um, you know I, I, I've over the last week and a half looking at this. And there are guys who, you know, John MacArthur has a, a view on this, and he says, this is, what I, this is what the Scripture says. The more I've looked into this topic, this study, I've come to the conclusion that, I mean, you have to do the best you can with what the Scripture says, and yet on a topic like this, at the end of the day, the, the, the real honest thing to say is we don't know. Now there are some. I think it's the best position. There are some views that are are less likely than others. Obviously, even in my mind, you know. Um, but I think, you know, to say we know the answer after having studied this is, I don't know that that's realistic. And again, this is not a a, a subject that you need to lose sleep over. This is not a, a, a topic that you have to. It's not a hill that you need to die on. Well, well said. I think there is a danger point here, and I think the danger point is when is what you just said. If you come to the decision that you've determined what the answer is, and everybody else had better be what you think is true, or else they have a problem. That's the danger point. Yeah. And I think if you look at these four positions, you know, you pretty much can rule out the yellow one, right? Right. You can pretty much throw that one out. That one's that 
there, there isn't any indication from an evidence standpoint that the world's getting better that the world's getting better or from scripture that that's actually what's going to happen okay amillennialism you have to really say okay you know we're just going to disregard this passage in revelation altogether um, and, and still to me it's got enough of the yellow one in it where I want to look at it and go I, I can't swallow that one either so it's got to be one of the two at the top right so it really comes down to do you believe there's going to be a rapture independent of the second coming of Christ to the earth or do you believe those two things occur simultaneously as such that Christ comes believers meet him in the air and he continues on to the earth and and begins to um, bring judgment and uh, restoration to creation at that point in time so it's really between those top two pretty much and, and it's not just two it's there's, there's, well, all, yeah, you know, there's offshoots the, of each of those. Well, right? if you get into if you get into the tribulation thing, then you get the mid tribbers and yeah, uh, you know, yeah there is that mid trib. You know, the most consistent view in conjunction with Scripture is the classical premillennialism view at the top. Um, the tribulation, the 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 rapture view, as we talked about a few weeks ago really exist because of Darby and dispensationalism and Schofield which is basically 150 years old and so um, there, there's no I mean you can go into Thessalonians and you find the parousia that's talked about which is the appearing of Christ uh, which is what what the tribute the rapture theory is based on and but if you remember, we've talked a lot about taking a verse or a word somewhere and building a whole set of beliefs off of it and how that's dangerous. And, and that's kind of what Darby did, is he took, he took a couple of passages like that and he built this system that has infiltrated in all sorts of different directions. Um, it may actually, it may be, it may be true but it's just kind of strange. And it led to a bunch of Kirk Cameron memes that were really bad. <laughs> hey, Jerry, so Kirk made a lot of Jerry money off of it. Hey, Jerry, have you ever heard the expression, uh, I believe it's uh, killerism? What's that? Killerism. Killerism? That's dispensationalism going back to the uh, early church fathers prior to Augustine. Yeah, killerism. But basically, Darby, he put it in, uh, he more formalized it, put it into a... Uh, more in a more formal way yeah, he filled in systematized it would be a better word he did it in a more systematic way I yeah, think he filled in a lot of cracks but anyway it was called killerism back in those days in the early church fathers yeah that's that's kind of a what what he's saying is um, it's not it's killia Ism or something like that. Right? Yeah, it's, uh, it's spelled with C H or it's right. basically spelled with a K. Yeah, I thought it was K I L. No, no, it's C H I A L. Yeah, uh, I S M. That's that's correct. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, but but he still he still presumed and filled in a whole lot. That's well, what I'm saying. They meant to systematize it. Yeah, that's why you don't find anybody, you don't find it predominant in the uh, from Augustine through the Reformation. You don't find very much about it at all. Yeah, I found one other writer that was before Darby yes. and did a pretty and, good job. And most it. people will say most honest, objective. Uh, theologians will tell you that the that the greatest theologians in the history of the church were in that time period, and, and they really didn't do anything with it. Um, you know, was it was it a blind spot, an oversight, personal prejudice? I don't know. We were talking at dinner. Someone, uh, Johnny, was talking about uh, the book that Bob had had showed me on the letters of James, and he said that's a controversial book. Well, it was. You know, Martin Luther didn't think it belonged in the canon for a while because he saw there being a conflict between James's view of uh, works and faith and Paul's view. And he thought they were in conflict and so therefore it didn't belong. But when he finally came to realize that they were saying the same thing from two different angles, then he said it belonged in the canon. So everybody has some blind spots along the way. True. But the point is, is that Dispensationalism is rather a late comer to the party, which makes it a little, which lends to discredit it to a certain extent. And uh, so, looking, you're safe probably, your safest place, if you're just looking for a safe place to hang out, would be in the blue zone. Carolina blue, I mean. Carolina blue zone. That's always a great place to be. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, Car I wouldn't suggest Carolina Blue Zone. <laughs> well, if you don't want to rest there, the good news is... Yeah, well, if you don't want to rest there, you may just end up going to hell. <laughs> <laughs> what I was going to say is, if you don't want to rest there... Jesus do is coming, that's all that matters. You got it. We, don't, we might not know the answer, but we know who does know the answer, and we trust him completely. All right. Thank you, guys. Y'all are dismissed. So be it. Yeah.